0: We all know that parenting is hard. So how do parents with disabilities do it? With creativity and because we know of the value of interdependence. Come hear about ways experts say we can best empower these families. And let's all learn about how parenting can be done differently. I'm your host, Marjorie Bonos, and today my guest is Liz Lightfoot. Liz is the director and a professor at the ASU School of Social Work. Her research centers on disability policy and services, with a focus on the intersections of disability with child welfare, disparities and abuse. Her research has been used in the creation of national policies involving disability. After talking about Dr. Lightfoot's beginnings and her involvement in the groundbreaking report rocking the cradle, we spoke of the kind of research we are pulled to do. Enjoy! And don't forget, for more information about where to find the full recording and additional resources, check out the show notes.
1: I was trying to figure out what would be interesting to talk about, and so I'm not gonna talk about the older the older research which led to rocking the cradle because that's well known. So I'll, I'll talk about some that I think are particularly interesting and some of their smaller studies and bigger studies. So first one um, I'll talk about is one that I thought was really a unique study that we did in um, Minnesota. We published it five years ago. So I think we did it a co- you know, a year or two before that. Um, and this I did with with Tracy Liberty and Minay Cho, who's a doctoral student who's, who has worked with me on a number of projects. What we have done is we were trying to do a case record review where we would go into the cases of parents who'd had their rights terminated, parents with disabilities who had their rights terminated through the child welfare system. And how we identified them was kind of unique. So instead of identifying them to the child welfare system, and the child welfare system in the United States is notoriously bad at even recording whether a parent has a disability or not. Um, So what we thought we would do is we would look to see how parents were listed as having a disability when they were in the education system. Cause in our education system, they're required to um, identify disabilities. That's not perfect either, but it's sure a whole lot better than in the child welfare system. So so we found so these were young parents, parents young parents and we we were able to match their records and to look at parents who'd had their rights terminated and we looked to see who had been identified when they were in the school system as having a disability. And then we pulled those records out. And that doesn't sound like a big deal, but it was very complicating getting all the permissions from everybody, the counties to look at the data and whatnot. Um, but then we went through and looked through the details of these case records to see how disability was identified, what kind of supports they were pro- people were provided, what the compliance was with the parents with the treatment plan, how they were included in the treatment plan and so on and so on. There's a whole lot that came out of this study, but was very interested to me is first of all that maybe about a quarter of the parents weren't even identified by child welfare as even having a disability so they just didn't know there was nothing in the case file so these parents not only were they not getting any kind of modification to services or supports or tailored services or anything the child welfare system didn't even know that they had a had a disability which that was I guess it's not shocking, but shocking at the same time. Like, I'm not surprised, but it's still horrible. So, how can we even provide supports if we are so bad at even knowing who we're working with? And that leads to people with invisible disabilities might be called, you know, lazy or, you know, they're not complying because they don't. I haven't been been told information in a way that that's accessible to them, or haven't been provided the support. So whatever they needed to understand what's going on. So that was one thing that was interesting. Other thing that was interesting: very few people get modifications to this, and they weren't very tailored to people. So I think there were some caseworkers who who naturally were providing, you know, repetition of information and doing a good job, but it wasn't at the average. So most people weren't provided modifications at all. And it wasn't documented in their case file. So they weren't taking any systematic look at the cases and saying, okay, even if it wasn't best practice, it's just the law, like we're required under you know, Title II of the Americans with Disabilities Act. And, you know, now we've got guidances from the Department of Justice and the Department of Health and Human Services to provide individually tailored services to parents with disabilities. It wasn't really mentioned in in most of the um, case records. And then... The final finding that was the most disturbing was something that we do in in child protection: is you look to they develop a plan, you know, a parenting plan that people are supposed to comply with, and then the parent is supposed to comply with this plan. And we found in the study that almost it was it was an extraordinarily high completion rate of their plan. So these parents were dedicated to doing exactly what they were supposed to do to get their children back. I think it was, I don't I think it was close to 90% yeah. of was completion rate. All of these parents lost their kids. Wow. So even though the parents are doing exactly what was told, the system still decided that they couldn't keep their children. And I find that a huge injustice to these parents. The parents are trying, they're working with the child protection workers to try to do everything they can. And I, I think it's a, just a failure of the system. Yeah. So the system decided what they needed to do. The parents did it and they still took their kids away. Yeah. So I thought I thought that this study really, you know, almost should be required knowledge of the child welfare system.
0: Yeah. I remember uh, this study actually, um, and I remember Tracy talking about it in a conference and it was so groundbreaking. I think it really like shook the whole community because you were able to get data, one larger set of data when we had done studies on smaller sets. You know, linking those two databases to get that information was just brilliant in terms of the method. So, it was not only sort of groundbreaking in the results that you got or the outcome that you got but also in terms of how you did it to get there and i think it really uh inspired many other researchers
1: you know it's sort of sad that you have to link these two systems together because the systems aren't linked already they should True. already be linked um but but it wasn't i mean it, but what was interesting i think is I mean, there's so much good, good research going on with parents with disabilities. And I I have so much of it. And it really, it's not in the United States and Canada and Australia and England and Scandinavia. You know, the United States is far behind what what, um, you all are doing in in other places. I mean, we know that we know parents are slipping through the cracks, um, but we actually could say, aha, see, here's here's evidence (laughs) that they're slipping through the cracks. So that was kind of I mean, it wasn't. I don't know. It was, it was sad, I guess, that we're not providing better services. So that was your first article. What would be the second? So this the second one I was thinking about is a study that I did recently. I had some great doctoral students at the University of Minnesota. We were sort of doing this large database look. So what's kind of interesting that I found when I was first starting into this field is I kept trying to figure out, what our prevalence was, and I'd hear these statistics that would say forty to eighty percent of parents with intellectual disabilities is their kid, and I'd be like, where is that data? Where? And I, I dive down, and I would track. It's nowhere. I think people were making that up. I could not find that anywhere. I, the the late the earliest place I found it referenced to was on it was in a VHS tape, ah. and I haven't been able to go back further. And so I've done a couple of different studies of it. We did a study earlier where we we're looking to see how many kids in foster care have a parent with a disability. We found that about a fifth of them, at least the data's not so great, but at least a fifth of them have a parent with a disability. That's huge. You know, so we should be training all foster parents, all child welfare workers. on working with parents with disabilities because a fifth of the kids in foster care in the U.S. have a parent with some kind of disability. Same in Canada. That they're... Yeah, yeah, and that's only the ones we're identifying. And if we know that there's a number that are flipping through. So that was so but, but this so then I'm trying to get into more like, where is this happening? And this is what we've done in disparities in child welfare in the United States. What are the points where we're seeing the disparities show up the most? Are there certain points? Is it when they're being referred to child welfare? Is it substantiation of maltreatment? Is it removal from home? Is it you know, all of the is it termination of parental rights? And so that's That's what I've been trying. We've done a couple of different studies. So the study I'm going to talk about, which I thought was kind of interesting, was looking at referral into child welfare. And this is just for parents with intellectual and developmental disabilities. So in the field of child welfare, and I've heard this in working, you know, talking with parents with disabilities and other folks that we think maybe some of it is that people with disabilities have so many mandated reporters in their life. They've got the, and so people call it the surveillance bias, where they've got people coming in and out of their home to, you know, personal care attendance or they're going to physical therapy or all of these kinds of things. So maybe it's that. One of the reasons that that they're getting involved in child welfare more often is because they've got people who are in their house every day. I don't have people coming in my house every day nobody's coming in my house and they couldn't see what I'm doing with my kids who are now grown but when they were kids (laughs) Um, but if I had somebody coming into my house every day they could say I was neglecting they could you know they all of these sorts of things Um, this is not even taking into account bias but just the the surveillance extra surveillance so we did a study of referral source so we looked at, at looking at the national data set of child welfare, and we only picked out the states that reported the data. So there's some states we have to exclude because they don't even look at parents with disabilities. But of the states that collect information on whether a parent has a disability, we look to see how are they getting into the child welfare system? Is it different than other parents? And it is. So we found that for parents with intellectual disabilities, and we actually looked at parents with just all parents with disabilities too. So parents, all parents with disabilities, parents with intellectual disabilities, and then parents without disabilities, that they're much more likely to be referred by a social service worker than parents without disabilities. So that is very interesting because that's exactly what the surveillance bias says. Education is still the number one, and that makes sense too, because kids are going to school and teachers will report. But for parents with disabilities, social service workers is much higher than would be expected for their referral rates. For other folks, when we're talking about surveillance bias, particularly looking at at people who are living in poverty, they haven't found evidence for that. But it looks like there is evidence for parents with disabilities that they are getting into the system in a different way. The other part of the study is we look to see how often it's substantiated. So they get referred to child welfare and then how often is it substantiated? Now for parents with disabilities, if they get in the child welfare system, it doesn't matter how they're referred, they're much more likely to be substantiated. Um, And I imagine that bias is playing a big part of this. though that's a hypothesis because I'm just having the data, out. but I'm guessing that's part of it. But what's interesting is that if they're referred by a social service provider, they're much more likely to be substantiated. So this pathway of getting referred by a social service worker more often, and then the social service workers report is more likely to be substantiated, leaves parents with disabilities much more likely to be substantiated. So this is like getting into the nitty gritty of things, but I think this is like gives us If we're trying to think about how to improve the child welfare system, sort of understanding, you know, if people understand where referral sources are coming from and what the biases might be, that can help us train them to be aware of that, rather than just sort of giving this generic stuff.
0: We've seen uh, research in looking at parenting capacity assessment that actually sort of uh, demonstrated that the notion of the expert quote unquote, made the difference often in cases because the experts, so that means any worker, and that could be just like a frontline worker, or it could go to, you know, a psychiatrist or psychologist that's called for their expertise, whatever they say, or they think, or their analysis is, is often sort of weighs more in the balance than, than even sort of the voices of the parents. Which often are not even present. They're invisible. They don't exist. So that's right. So it's interesting to see, in terms of your research, how it it fits with other types of research with different methodology, but you come out with a similar. Yeah,
1: it's, yeah, it's yeah, it's it's a very very similar idea. Though I do have to say. It doesn't even matter who's referring. They still, you know, like it's still higher, but but this this idea of the expert and it's like the whole medical model flapped in your face about who, you know, the experts will decide what is, you know, if they've said if they've referred it, it must be true. Right. And and it and it puts the mandated reporters in this in this tight, you know, box too, because social workers and others for a mandated reporter. I just went to a mandated reporter training a few days ago. And you know, essentially the message we're given is any doubt whatsoever, report. And what if you think it's not going to work out? Well, you still have to report. You know, so you're trained to report, even if you might not think it's you you just have a hunch. Right. And that can lead to these horrible ramifications for tearing families apart. So it's I, I, feel, I feel bad for the mandated reporters in some way too, because I don't think people are necessarily doing it because they want to tear families apart, but that's what may happen. Yeah. And I'll just mention also that in our
0: conversation, for someone who doesn't know all the, the research that do exist, there are evidence um, from intervention type of, of research that showcase that parents with disabilities are good parents, they're capable. And so it's not like we're saying, you know, we don't believe what the reporters are saying. It's just, we know that the parents do have the capacity to parent. Right. And so it's putting those two together that leads the conclusion in terms of the surveillance.
1: Right, phase. and and it really, I you know, there's parents with disabilities who are horrible parents and there's parents without disabilities who are horrible parents. And the disability is not the fact, yes. <laughs> you know, so it has to be based on behavior. And that's been kind of my whole focus is like, you know, we can't be doing this based on assumptions or, or, or risk. like we think, how could this parent ever parent a kid, you know, that's not how we're supposed to be doing our assessments. <laughs> it, you know, is it they're actually neglecting their child, not do we think they will necessarily neglect their child? So, yeah, Absolutely absolutely but i think these biases are so strong that they lead they lead to horrible disparities yeah. for parents with disabilities. Yeah. So thank you for that one. What is your third one? Okay, so the the third one, so the you know the previous two and a lot of my work has been related to sort of documenting problems, you know, what are what are the you know and and i really wanted to give tools to people, especially social workers, so because I'm in a social work, so child welfare workers or people working in disability services to evidence based practice to working with parents with disabilities, understanding that we have very few funding streams to fund this. So there's a few, some states have these have some pilot projects where they are providing funding for parents with disabilities to parent their kids, but primarily our funding gives individuals <laughs> money to to take care of themselves you know so there you can't generally get a personal care assistant to help you dress your ch- child you can to help you dress yourself um so anyways we don't have funding streams. so i was trying to figure out something that could be integrated into child welfare practice that was positive and so we this is with a doctoral student of mine, she's now a professor at um, St. Catherine's University, Sharon DeZellar, and I developed this parent-centered planning um, model, which is very similar to person-centered planning. It's borrowed from person-centered planning. We thought this would be a simple intervention that we could use that child welfare workers or others could use when they're working with a parent with a disability. And essentially, the idea is to recenter the focus away from what a parent can or can't do independently to what supports the parent and family need and what their goals are for their family and what sort of supports we can we can gather around the parent to parent their child whatever it may be and so it's it's very simple and we're trying to do this sort of as a brief model because we knew there wasn't funding attached to this so we we developed this sort of brief intervention and tested it out. And so we tested it with parents with disabilities, in Minnesota. And these were parents with intellectual and developmental disabilities. And we held, and we called them parent-centered planning meetings, where we would bring the parent and whoever they decided were their support people, usually their family, sometimes friends, sometimes paid workers, even though that's not what they're supposed to do. But that's, for some people, that's who their close supports are, and had them go through a planning process. And parents loved it. And for a lot of time, it was the only time they've ever actually sat down and talked about parenting their kids in a way that was positive. So, And the sort of impetus behind doing this is to pay for anything preventative in child welfare in the United States. It has to be an evidence-based practice. And so it has to be tested. So that's what we're trying to develop a like, no-cost brief intervention that would be evidence-based, that then they could use to their child welfare funding to pay for. So I've got several articles on it. One article sort of explains the whole process of doing it. Um, we found that parents did meet, and they made goals. We then followed up with them later, and they actually had taken the steps to, towards meeting their goals. Um, and they had developed stronger supports some of them had reduced their support circles a little bit, but that's because they realized that that some people might not actually providing them support. So they got better support systems for parenting. Amazing. So I, yeah, I was. This was this was really fun. This was also a super time consuming project, but we, you know, we now have we have we made a manual so anyone can download it and use it. And hopefully people can, um, you know, if they're looking for something they can take off the shelf to, you know, if they're in child welfare and they can take it off the shelf, it's very simple, simple to implement. We tried to make it something so it didn't take a whole lot of extra work or training.
0: That's amazing. I'm a clinician at heart, you know, so um, hearing about how research can be used and lead to a resource that's useful for clinician, I think is it's the best kind of research for me, just because I know how when you're working on, on the front line, you're just craving for all those resources or tools that you could use in different situations. And and this would be uh, definitely beautiful. It will be in the show notes, actually, sort of the link so that people can download it.
1: This is a very much of a social work intervention where we're looking at developing the supports. Like there's just no emphasis at all on training the parent. parent. And there, I mean, there's great, and we have lots, that's where our evidence is. We've got lots of, and I know you've been involved in a lot of these evidence-based um, practices and with Maurice and you know and training parents and improving parenting practices so we wanted to do one that was based on the context and there's a few of them that you know Gwyneth Llewellyn has done some in Australia and there's there's a few of them but there's not too many um that focused on this so that was why we were doing this one we're like well let's do a social work version of this that's beautiful I think it anyways you know when
0: we work with people, it's not just people, we work with like system around the person. Right. And so uh, yeah. totally. So even if I'm a psychologist, I do look at the context. Uh, I know <laughs> you do. yeah, because, because I've learned, I mean, there's so many social workers that I've worked with. It's like, right. it really opened my eyes in terms of like, it's not just one person. It's like, you know the neighbor that helps out. It's the pharmacist right. that you know. You ask questions when your your son is right. sick. It's you know right. a whole bunch of people around. It's the school You're and right. the teachers and you know and so um, yeah, totally. The system has to be. Improved. So I
1: think it's all. I think it's all important. So that's why that's why when you were talking about the community of researchers, that's what I think is so lovely is that we've got people, especially in this field, we get people from different. Perspectives and different backgrounds and training who are thinking about this different ways, and the and the activists too. And all of us are activists in our own way, but there's different, you know, different just different approaches and perspectives to what we think is, you know, what we think we're, we're interested in focusing on, and all of that helps. Yeah, definitely. So let's
0: move to a different sort of looking at the future. Yeah what do you think you know the the research community and the social work community or child welfare community would need to to sort of like go into which direction um for right. the future
1: well i'll tell you what i what i was what i've been you know from doing this for a while what i i think at least in my particular area that really working on changing the practice, the child welfare practices to support parents with disabilities. And, we, and it's been happening a little bit that we've had guidances and federal guidances and whatnot. Um, so I think there's a little more awareness to this. But I, I think we need to, you know, institute training for child welfare workers on working with parents with disabilities and not just like this is how you talk to a parent with a disability, but like understanding the biases that are built into the system and the the historic discrimination and oppression that has led to this and our and our biases in society as well. And to, to really understand this as a as a social justice issue. We understand this about about disparities, racial disparities um, in the United States, the Native Americans, you know, similar in Canada, you know, where you know we took kids and put them in boarding schools. Well, it's it's different, but it's a similar sort of of discrimination that's occurred for 100 years related to parents with disabilities in child for more than that. But we had eugenics laws and then we had these horrible state laws that still exist. So I think we need to do this massive overhaul. And so what, what I'm doing is through the National Research Center on Parents with Disabilities, which is at um, Brandeis, that's the one that Susan Parrish started and Monica Mitra is the PI on that. I've got a, a project that's starting up Next year, I did it to start, so I'm like at the latter part of the grant where I'm developing a national training for parents with disabilities. I mean, not for parents with disabilities, for child welfare workers working with parents with disabilities. So it's geared toward the child welfare workers and we're gonna be, testing this and then we're hopeful we will be able to implement this nationally so you know we've been talking to the folks and some of the national agencies and they really want this to you know the department of justice and office of civil rights are you know they're they're paying attention to parents with disabilities now and that's new (laughs) that's new so in the united states we've made a lot of progress so we're catching up to canada we're catching up to australia but i i think it's starting to become uh, awareness issue. So when I tell people what I'm doing now, people, you know, people get it. They say, yeah. I say, do you know that they they can, they can take kids away just because a parent has a disability, and they think that's a bad thing. And I don't know if 30 years ago, they would say so. Yeah. So I think, I think we've made some progress. Yeah. So the future is looking good. That's what I'm hearing. I, well, I don't, I don't, that's, I have to say that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> To keep, me, to keep me going, it's still, still bad things happening every day to people. So I, I you know, but I I, I, I want to think that we can, I, I I can only keep doing this, if I think we can improve. Yes.
0: So here's my last question for our conversation. If you were able to talk to child welfare workers and social workers, what is the one thing you would like them to remember about our conversation today or about your work that you've done?
1: I think like the main the main issue is that parents with disabilities should be treated just like other parents and if you're working with a parent who's been referred to you um, to child welfare that focus on their parenting and what you can do to support their parenting rather than focusing on their disability. I mean you want to provide disability appropriate supports but the disability just because a parent has a disability has nothing to do with whether they're going to be a good parent or not. It might be that you're not providing them enough supports, but it has nothing to do with whether they're going to be a good parent or not. And that's like the ultimate goal. Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for, for chatting with me. It's been fun. This podcast was supported in part by a grant from the Minnesota
0: Department of Human Services, Children and Family Services Division.